0: Our passage this morning is found in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow him for myself in the land, and I will have pity on not pitied, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, thou art my God. The book of Hosea falls into two sections.
1: Chapters 1 through 3 deals with Hosea's marriage to Gomer, a harlot, and is a symbolic parable of God's relation to Israel. And Chapters 4 through 14 are excerpts from Hosea's preaching over the 30 or 40 years leading up to the destruction of Samaria, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. These first three chapters of Hosea are so powerful and so personal. What I want to do this morning is just walk through them with you. We won't look at the other half of the book because I think if you get what is in chapters 1 to 3, you've got the book. The rest of it is simply unfolding what the first three chapters are about. And the main point that I want to unfold out of these first three chapters for Bethlehem at the end of 1982 is this. Love God warmly as your husband Don't just serve him dutifully as your Lord. I think that's the point of these chapters for us. Let's begin at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beiri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now that little verse tells us about the situation, Hosea prophesied over a period of some 30 years leading up to a serious destruction of the northern kingdom Israel in 722 B.C. The whole book seems to be addressed to the northern kingdom Israel rather than to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Hosea is a contemporary of the firebrand Amos, and both of them addressed the corruption and the idolatry of the northern kingdom Israel. Of Israel. But there's something utterly unique about Hosea. God called upon Hosea to suffer in his own marriage the tragedy that he would proclaim to the people. What happens in these next verses is shocking because Israel and her idolatry is shocking in the eyes of the Lord. Verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Some Christians would never think of marrying a pimp or a prostitute and nevertheless fall in love with an unbeliever. A well-bred unbeliever, no doubt. But in God's eyes, everyone who forsakes the Lord is a whore. Everyone is either faithfully married to God or as a prostitute. There are no religious singles in God's eyes. The reason for that is that he made us, all of us here, for himself. And if we give our hearts to another and get our kicks somewhere else, we are prostituting ourselves. And have become a harlot in God's eyes. That was Israel's condition here. And so God did an amazing thing. He took the prophet Hosea and he said to him, before you pronounce any word of judgment upon my wife of harlotry, I'm going to show you what it's like to be married to a harlot. Go marry Gomer, the harlot down in the red light district. Go marry a harlot. Hosea obeys and has a son by this harlot. And here come the sons in verses 4 and 5. Two sons and a daughter. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while and I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will... Put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer is going to have three children, and each of the children is going to get a symbolic name. And the name is going to symbolize uh, symbolize what a marriage of harlotry always begets, judgment. The first child is named Jezreel, and the reference is to Jehu. A former king of Israel who in the city of Jezreel some decades earlier had slaughtered Joram the king, Amaziah the king, Jezebel and 70 sons of Ahab. Now in doing that, he had functioned as the right hand of the Almighty because those people deserved to be punished. Yet in doing it, he acted with a high hand in a reckless and impetuous way so that Jezreel and Jehu came to stand for. A godless recklessness in the doing of supposed good deeds. And when verse five says that God is going to break the bow of Israel and refers back to Jehu, I think what he means is that same spirit of reckless treachery and violence still marks the people today and I'm going to break it. So it quits. What about the next two children? Verses six and nine. She conceived again, bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name, not pitied, for I will no more have pity on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, nor by sword, nor by war, nor by horses or horsemen. And when she had weaned, not pitied, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. It's interesting that Hosea does not tell us whether these last two children are his. You can't tell when you live with a harlot. But like Jezreel, their names show that harlotry or forsaking the Lord always begets judgment. God is going to stop pitying Israel one of these days if she presses on in her harlotry. There's going to come a day when the wife has gone too far and there will be no reparation. Or so it seems as verse 9 comes to an end. Not pity, not my people. But the amazing thing about chapter 1 is that before Hosea can get too far in his words of judgment, here comes a word of Recovery in verses 10 through the first one of chapter 2. Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Sons of the living God. And the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. I think that means from the land of their captivity, home. Shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brother, my people, and to your sister, she has obtained pity. In other words, you put those two together, the word of judgment and the word of salvation, and it seems to say this. God may replace wrath or replace pity with wrath for a season. He may disinherit several generations of Israel, but his last word is not divorce. His last word is, I will return to her and call her pitied and my people. So, to sum up chapter 1, three things. Hosea married a harlot to symbolize God's relation to unfaithful Israel. Two, she had three children whose names symbolize judgment upon Israel. And three, nevertheless, the last word is a word of promise that eventually he will have his wife back pure. Now chapter 2, verse 2. Hosea speaks again of his wife, Gomer, and also the words, I think, are God's words to his faithless Israel. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born. Now, Hosea is back where he started in chapter 1, verse 2. He's not talking about a violent child, Israel, or two bastards born of harlotry anymore. He's talking about a wife. A wife of harlotry. He's thinking of Israel again and comparing her to this woman, Gomer. And then in verses 2 through 13, Hosea and God. You can't really tell who's speaking here. It's both and. Gomer to his wife or uh, Hosea, Hosea and God speaking, Hosea to his wife, Gomer and God to his wife, Israel. Let me try to just sum up these verses with three of them. Look at verse five. Their mother, still referring to the children, has played the harlot. She that conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go to my lover's who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. And then skip down to verse 8. God says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil. I lavished upon her silver and gold, which she then used for Baal. And then verse 13, the upshot. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned incense to them and decked herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, says the Lord. So, in those three verses, we see the tragedy of Israel summed up. First, God wants to be her husband, and she's a harlot and goes after other lovers. Two, She gets all of her food and materials from her true husband, but thinks she's getting them from the bales, the new lovers. And three, God will punish that kind of idolatry. Whenever God is treated as less than a husband, he mightily shows that he is more than a husband. Now, the text that Tom read... Verses 14 to 23 is, to my mind, one of the tenderest and most beautiful love songs in all the Bible. And it's sung by God to his wife of harlotry. But before we look at that in detail, skip over to chapter 3 with me. And let's take one last look at Hosea and Gomer. This is the last time they turn up in this book, and then it's over. The symbol, the parable is over, you might say, and he begins his words to Israel directly. She has run off with a paramour. We would say a significant other today. So Hosea is free. Right? Now he can get a divorce. She has ended the marriage. She's not just playing around. She's quit. She's gone. Hosea's is free. Wrong. God would not give up Israel, and therefore he aims to show Hosea what it's like not to give up. To symbolize God's undying love for his harlot, Israel. Verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again and love a woman. Now, I, I believe it's the same woman. Otherwise, the symbolism breaks down. You have God with two wives. There's only one wife, Israel, and only one Gomer. For Hosea. Go love her again, who has been loved of a paramour, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love hostess twinkies. You have to translate it hostess twinkies, otherwise the horror of the sentence is missed. She has chosen hostess twinkies. And put God on the shelf. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And a homer and a lecheth of barley. Now, when you just stop and think for a moment. of What God asked Hosea to do here. Maybe the love of God for us. In our wretchedness will begin to come clear. She had been faithless all along. She never quit being a harlot. And now, she's quit. She's gone off and shacked up with her paramour. And God says, not just uh, go bring her home. He says, go, love a woman. Love her, Hosea. Now, if that weren't emotionally impossible, to boot... He can't afford it. The reason I don't think he can afford it is because he didn't pay the whole thing in cash. He can come up with half of it in cash and then he's got to get barley for the rest. She's sunk to the level of a slave. She's a prostitute. He's a pimp. And God says, buy her back. It is simply astonishing. The reason God could expect that impossible emotional event from Hosea is because of what God said he intended to do with us in verses 14 to 23 in chapter 2. So let's look at what God is going to do for Israel. And you know from our previous principles of interpretation That this applies not only to the natural sons of Israel, but those who have become sons of Abraham by faith. And we are not stretching the context at all to say this is the way God relates to us today as well. Three things God aims to do for his wife of harlotry in these verses and apply it to yourself as we look at them. First, verse 14 He is going to woo her tenderly. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Everyone in this room is guilty of harlotry towards God. We are guilty of our hearts running after lovers. Everybody has had a paramour in 82. Somebody has gotten his kicks from ambition, from money, from sex, from... You know it. You name it. And God, this verse says, has not given up on you. This is gospel at the end of 82. He has not quit his wife of harlotry. He promises to take her into the wilderness. He wants you alone with himself So that he can whisper tenderly into your ear. Harlot though you be. The literal Hebrew here is he wants to speak to her heart. Not just to her head. And when he speaks to her heart, what does he say but enticing and alluring things. The kind of thing, no doubt, a lover would say who takes her arm Away from the punch bowl, out of the living room, off the porch, into the garden where they can be alone. What does he say there? God wants to talk that way with you. Go with him into the wilderness this week as 82 comes to an end. And listen with your heart. That's what the text means. He wants to speak to your heart. And do not use this as an excuse. I am too ugly. I am too dirty. I have been too unfaithful. He could never get near to me. Because there is no doubt who God is talking to in verse 14. It is a wife of harlotry who has sold herself to a paramour. You have no excuse. He will speak tenderly to you, no matter what you've done in 82. Second thing he's going to do, verse 15, he's going to promise her hope and safety. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. Anybody remember the valley of Achor? It's the very first place that Israel committed harlotry. They came across the Jordan River when they were entering the Promised Land. God mightily gave them Jericho, and Achan committed harlotry. He clutched to himself the booty that was to be God's, and said, in effect, I want this money, I don't want God. And he smashed Israel at Ai and defeated them in the Valley of Achor. And he says, the Valley of Achor, if you just come back to me, my harlot will be a door of hope. It's a beautiful picture for those who knew their history. Not only that, in verse 18, he spells it out even fuller, more fully. I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground. And I'm going to abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. If only my estranged wife would come home, she will find paradise. That's what that verse means. That's what the animals are all about. God gonna make a covenant with the animals. Leave her alone. The animals, the lions, she can pet them all. They're hers, for they have it. And she will lie down in safety, no threats from the bow and the sword and war. It is paradise if she will just come home and leave her paramour. And there's no doubt then what words God speaks to her in private. He says, it will be so good. Won't you come home? Third, verses 19 and 20, he promises something utterly amazing. He will go back. And start over with her at the betrothal. And they will consummate their marriage in purity. Verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. In steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Three times. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. We'll start over again the way it was at the engagement, at the exodus. When you believed in me, when you thought I was worth trusting, when you would follow me anywhere, we'll go back and start over. It can happen. 1982 can be wiped away. And there can be paradise between us again. I've always kept faithfulness and now it can be mutual. We can have a new foundation of righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness between you and your divine husband. But then comes the most daring statement of all at the end of the verse 20. And you shall know the Lord That word know in the Bible, you know, has a very rich meaning. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. Matthew 1.25, Joseph knew her not until she had borne the child. In the context of a broken marriage and the renewal of betrothal vows What can this mean? But God will grant to his wife of harlotry an intimacy as pure as the purest sexual intercourse. He wants her back. He wants her all the way back. He will not hold her at a distance. Some husbands might have the strength to say, all right, you can come live in the house. God will not hold her at a distance. He will have her all the way back and withhold nothing. The fellowship, the communion, the profoundest union imaginable with Almighty God will be granted to her if she will just come home broken and empty. That's the gospel from the Old Testament. That's the meaning of Christmas 700 years before the time. God comes to woo his wife of harlotry. He promises her the fullest hope and safety. And three, he says, we can start over. Absolutely from the scratch of our engagement. I can start over with you. And what do we have to do to qualify for that kind of relationship with God? Verse 16. It's really not very hard. Once you've heard these three, and don't purse your lips and look away. In that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. That's all you got to do, Just call him my husband. Baal here has two meanings. <coughs> First meaning, you know readily, the Baals were were idols, false foreign gods. Verse 17 makes it clear that that's part of his meaning. And so I think verse 16 would mean then, you no longer will include me among the number of your many lovers and many gods. You will rather recognize me as your only true God, only lover, your husband. But there's a second meaning which I think is more basic here and gets at what we need here at Bethlehem more. Fifteen times in the Old Testament, Baal, Baal, means husband. Just translated husband. But husband in the sense of owner and lord. A very negative view of what it means to be a husband. I think that's the way Israel began to relate to Yahweh, her God. And she mingled him in with the Baals. And it says in chapter 7, verse 14, that the way she related to the Baals was by gashing herself with knives to try to get the Baals to give her what she wanted. In other words, she had left one husband for another husband or began to think of her first husband. In terms of a very uh, onerous, heavy-handed master, from home to get anything, you must gash yourself and labor, just like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when Elijah was wrestling with them. Now, if that's the sense of Baal here—that he is, lordly, owner, masterly, heavy-handed husband. Then the point of verse sixteen is relate to me as a loving husband. Love me warmly as a husband. Don't just try to serve me dutifully and gash yourselves for me as your Lord. So the good news in my mind at the end of nineteen eighty two is that God wants you to love him as husband, not just serve him. As Lord. So when you think back over now of 1982 and how little His Word has meant to you and how hard it has been to spend significant time in prayer and how many kicks other things have brought you much more than God, then remember this God's wooing of you today in this text is not based on a naive estimation of your character. The point of Hosea is that God exalts his mercy by pursuing relentlessly a wife of harlotry. And the good news of Hosea and of the parable of the prodigal son, in case you hear echoes of that, and of Christmas is that God knows we have sold ourselves for a song in 1982. And yet, he stands here today and speaks through my voice to you, wooing you into the chambers of his love. It is simply astonishing. It is the most encouraging way to end a year. And I want those of you to take special notice of this who have a habit of putting out your arm when God starts to move in on you as a lover and keep him just about that far and shake his hand and work for him. But if he starts to get near like this, you push him off. I want you to hear this message because if if verse 16 means anything, it means you shouldn't do that. Very simply. When God makes loving advances on you, You ought to submit to that. It's not good to welcome him, yes sir. That's not good. It's good to welcome him, my husband. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, my prayer is that those here who feel dirty because of 82 might love this word, might just embrace this text to their hearts and realize that you said to Hosea, go get her, go get her, pay for her, whatever you have to do. I will have back my harlot wife. And oh, help us to come, help these people, Lord, to put down their emotional defenses, I can tell by the faces on some people to whom I'm speaking. They hate to talk about you in these terms. They don't like sexual imagery. They don't like intimacy. They want to serve you. Lord, I pray for those people. That they might get serious with you. That they might realize that what has happened on Calvary can only be embraced. It can't just be served. Have mercy to do a mighty work in the hearts of your people here at the end of the
0: year, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.